All right, guys, if you would, open your Bibles to um, Mark chapter 6. Go to Mark chapter 6, and, and before we even begin, and I take you exactly where we're going, which is actually three verses we're going to look at today. Three verses, but uh, I got to uh, set up the scene that what we're going to talk about in Mark chapter 6, uh, beginning even before that. If we look, if you back up, in fact, you might want to, in your Bibles, back up to Mark chapter 1, and you might see this in, your, in the headings, some subheadings, you might catch it, you probably have these events highlighted or what have you, but there's a lot that takes place. Today we want to talk about the, the, the power of his presence, the power of his presence, because uh, as we were talking and singing and someone mentioned earlier, just being able to get through this world right now, things are pretty radical, and we need his power, his power to endure, his power to to deal with the things that we're faced with. But if you look in Mark chapter 1, we see so many things taking place. It's just one after the other. In chapter 1, we see that Jesus, uh, he heals or, or uh, there's a demon-possessed man that he delivers. He cleanses a leper. He actually heals Peter's mother-in-law. In chapter 2, there's a paralytic that he heals. In chapter 3, in chapter 3, there's a man with a withered hand that he heals. And in chapter 3, we begin to see something that is mentioned there, that the crowds were following him. They were starting to get word and things, obviously what we were just looked at right now, they started to understand who he was and get an idea of who he was and what he was doing and he was coming. In chapter 4, we see that he calms a storm. Now that's power. All these things, we just see his power over and over in these chapters. In chapter 5, there's a, another demon-possessed guy that he delivers. Then there's Jairus' daughter. He heals her and restores her life. And then there's this woman with a blood, an issue of blood. And we may talk about her later. But there's so much power going on. In fact, it specifically re refers to his power, speaking of the woman who touched the hem of his uh, garment, and power left him. The power of his presence I want to look at today. So the three verses that we're going to look at is in chapter 6. It's towards the end of, or at the end of chapter 6. But in chapter 6, there's something that takes place. And I want to ask you this question even before we get going. Is his power, where would we be without his power in our life? Without the power that drew us to himself. Had we not make that, made that decision and then his power changing us to who we are. Where would we be? Think of the things that you were doing, the things that you might be doing still without his power. The Bible has a lot to say about his power. In the psalm, the psalmist writes that power belongs to you, O God. In Job 24, 16, it says, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? His power is great. His power is why you're here. His power is what allows us to continue to serve him even in these times. In Nahum 1.3, it says, The Lord is great in power. The Lord is great in power. Where would we be without that power? I don't often like to think about that, but it's, it's a good reminder for us to take ourselves back to what we were doing, what we did, who we were, and now who we are. Because it's a testimony to the world. It's a testimony of the Lord. But in Mark chapter 6, we see things taking place. And early in Mark chapter 6, 
Uh, Jesus has compassion on the people. It says he saw them and he had compassion because they looked like a sheep without a shepherd. And so here Jesus is with the shepherd's heart looking at the people and seeing them and having compassion. He feeds 5,000 people with five pieces of bread and two fish. His power is great. At one time, he sends his disciples across the sea. He goes up to the mount to pray. And as he's praying, he looks, and the way he was able to look was supernatural. His power was evident because in, in that location, that time of the hour, the third watch, I believe it was, it would be impossible for the human eye to see what was going on on the sea. And he saw the disciples struggling. And as he was praying, he saw them in their struggle. And he walks on the water, and then he calms another storm. His power just continues as we look at the book of Mark, and it would, it would do well for us to just go verse by verse, beginning at, at chapter 1. But I want to jump to and make a point today of his power, the power of his presence. You know, there's something that casts doubt on Jesus' miracles, his power. And that is that these miracles were witnessed by fishermen. That's a joke. Fishermen, I caught it. It was this big. And, anyway, okay. <laughs> All right. I think I saw a fisherman kind of like, uh-oh. That's not a knock on fishermen, but it is a little joke. But the, his miracles are evident of his power. They reveal his power. And at this time in Mark chapter 6, even more so that people are really in a frenzy and find, trying to find out where he is, where he's going, because they want to be there. They want to see him. The miracles, the healings, this excitement, the talk about Jesus, the interest in Jesus was at a high point. Jesus had reached somewhat of a celebrity status in the regions. So people heard of him, they knew of him, and they wanted to see him. They needed him for many reasons. So let's look at the three verses, uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 53. Mark chapter 6, verse 53. And you know, before I even read that verse for you, 52 needs to be explained because it sets up the scene. Because Jesus just saw them struggling in, on the Sea of Galilee. He walks he saves them. He calms the storm. He just fed the 5,000. But in verse 52, the, it shows that the disciples were struggling with the fact that he calmed the storm. They didn't understand that he just fed 5,000. It didn't click. It speaks of their heart being hardened because they struggled with the, they struggled with the calming of the storm because they struggled or without, with understanding the feeding of the 5,000. And without grasping his power to begin with, when the power continued, they didn't grasp it as well. So they were hardened, the Bible says. Their hearts were hardened. Or in other words, they were blinded to his miracles. They were blinded to his power. And that is a place that we can find ourselves even in today. When we see and we know that someone has been healed. When the Lord has changed someone's life who we thought would never be changed. And now they love the Lord. That's a miracle in itself, and sometimes it, we might become hardened and blinded to the reality of that power that just took place and not embrace it and not give him the glory. So that being said, look at Mark chapter 6, verse 53. It reads, 
When they had crossed over, they came to the land of uh, Gennesaret and moored to the shore, or they anchored to the shore. It's speaking of them coming to the shore, either they shored up the boat or they dropped the anchor or they hooked up somewhere, but they landed their boat. So when they had crossed over, they came to that land of Gennesaret and they anchored there. They crossed over. Right now, I, this verse right now speaks to me of the power to serve. The power to serve Jesus Christ. It says they crossed over. You see, they were on a mission. And as I mentioned earlier, we're all in, in the mission field, wherever we are. Wherever we are, it's a mission field. They crossed over on a mission. Now, what I want to do with these three verses, only three verses, is, yeah, I'll explain to you what's going on, who was doing what and everything. But as I often want to get across is, how does it minister to me today? Who am I in this verse or these verses? Or am I there? Should I be there? How should my heart set be? What is the Lord's heart set towards, towards me through these verses? So, what I see here is when they had crossed over there with Jesus, they had just been witness of his power, and now they've crossed over on a mission in Gennesaret. And in Gennesaret, it was a fertile land, and that's important, a fertile land. In other words, it was a strip of land that was extremely fertile, uh, extraordinarily fertile for the area. And so here they are going to this place. And this is a place where the fig trees, the olive trees, palms, walnuts, they usually would require diverse conditions to grow. But here they grew well, very well. And so I see a lot that jumps out to me in this verse. Going with the Lord, being with the Lord, we should be. Knowing that we are, he takes us on a mission somewhere, wherever it is that we are. And the fact that wherever we are is this mission field is an extraordinarily fertile land. This world is extraordinarily fertile. How so? How could we say that when we see so much of the rejection of God, the rejection of godly uh, standards and morals? Well, we have to realize that we are in a fertile land, believe it or not. Why is it fertile? Because of the great sin, because of depression, because of all the hurt and the emptiness in this world. And when we, before coming to Christ, we recognized, when we recognized, how empty we were, how hurt we were, how empty life was, how meaningless life was, and how much sin we were involved in, we were, we were ready. We were ready for a change. And he reveals himself even in those times. And so when we, have, we have to keep in our minds that this world that we are in is a world that is extremely fertile for salvation. It doesn't look like it when you turn on the TV, when you see what's going on, when you, when you see what's accepted what, as the norm. It seems that we're so far from the Lord. But people are so broken, they're in great need. When we were in great need, we didn't know it. We didn't see it, but we were in great need. I bet if you ask around, maybe you've been told, people who knew you before the Lord saw you and said, man, I knew when you were getting ready. I knew when you were ready. I knew when you were starting to think about God. And so we have to have this mindset that we find in, uh, in verse 53. Being with the Lord and going with him, crossing over to the mission field, where is a great need in this world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, it reads this. All 
All of this, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We have a ministry of reconciliation. And how that looks to each of us is different in many different ways, whether it's your workplace, your neighbors, strangers, when you're at the market, whatever your situation is, wherever the Lord crosses you over, wherever he takes you, that's your, that is where you have to exercise this ministry of reconciliation that we've been given. Some of us have this role in our own households with a, with, with a spouse, with children, with parents. And so we need to recognize his power and when we recognize his power, he's, his power has placed us or put us to service. He's called us to service. It says, it goes on to say that they, when they crossed over to this fertile land, that they anchored to the shore. When I see this, that they anchored to the shore, how does that refer to me? How, does that, how can I relate to this? Well, I take it as, you know what? Stay for a while. Anchor for a while. Spend some time with people. Don't give up on people. Jesus, on, uh, the way Jesus was seeing them was like sheep without a shepherd. He had that kind of a heart set. If we don't live life with that kind of a heart set, we will not anchor. We'll just keep going by. We might pull up to the shore and realize the mess and get out of there. But we should take this in understanding that that's where the Lord wants us. We want to stay with him, stay with his heart, and, and work for him in this world, this fertile land. Look at verse uh, 54. It says, when they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. Now, when they got out of the boat, this uh, refers to me as the power to answer the call that we've been given. The, the, answer, the power to answer the call. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. So they got out of the boat. I see that as, listen, the Lord's going to take us places, give us opportunities, but we don't, we're not there to be a spectator. We need to get in the mix. We need to get off the boat. He takes us to a place we need to respond. He has you, let's say, in a family, family situation, a marriage, and he needs you to serve him, to be a minister of reconciliation. You know, we have a lot of places to go. There might be other people that you know want to hear you, and these may not. But without anchoring and finding out, giving people your time, and not giving up on people, having the Lord's heart set changes everything. The Lord's going to take us places. He's going to take us to places to, to minister, and we have to understand that we're not just coming along for the ride. We're not saved, and now we're ministers of reconciliations with a badge, and we do nothing. We don't give people our time. We don't show compassion. You know, we have to be equipped by serving the Lord, drawing near to him. He empowers us. He equips us so that, equips us so that we're ready to answer the call, so that we have that power, his power, to answer the call. You know, I was watching, and this is a great time of the year, some college football past few days and some great games and you know I, I like you know there's times when these college uh, athletes they have a career in the NFL so they'll sit out and uh, it's understandable um, and, but you know what it makes for another a game because now you have other guys coming in 
to play. You got other guys that have to step up. And I was looking at some of these games, and you look at the backup quarterbacks that are being put in. I saw one where there was a third-string quarterback in, and this guy had to be ready. He has to be equipped. You know, we have to be ready. Instead of just saying, you know what, well, I'm part of the team. I'm a minister of reconciliation, and I get to stand on the sideline. Well, you know what, the mindset should be, I get to stand on the sideline, and you're ready and eager, ready to get in the game and being equipped. We need to learn to, that the Lord equips us so that we're ready when we're called, when he takes us, when he crosses us over somewhere to serve. So look at Romans chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. It says there, and this is Paul, and he says, I am obligated, I am obligated, obligated both to the Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, that this is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you, who are in Rome. Now, interesting here is because that's the mindset we should have. Not that I'm just on the team, and if we win the championship, I get a ring. It should be I'm on the team, and I am ready to play when my number is called, when I need to step in. I am obligated, it says here. Obligated is afaletes. Afaletes is the, sounds like afaletes, right? That's how I remember it. Afaletes. It's obligated, and it's one who owes another, a debtor, bound by some duty. Our mindset should be, I'm bound by a duty for the Lord. I'm bound to serve him. I'm dedicated to it. I am a debtor. It says, verse 15, that is why I'm so eager. And so when we look at Paul, this is the mindset that we should also have. I am, that, that is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel. Eager with his which is prothumos. The Greek word is prothumos, and it means ready, willing. Being ready and willing. When you get that, um, when you have that picture in your mind, then, and, and along with being on the sidelines of a college game, being ready and willing. You know, we don't want to see someone go down, whoever the first string guy is, but you know what? You're helping him while he's in there. You're sending him plays. You're talking to him during uh, timeouts or whatever it is. You're giving him whatever information he needs that the coaches want him to have. And if he goes down, you have to step in. So you need to know your position. You need to know your game. And so this is Paul. I am obligated. Man, I have, I'm bound to a duty. I'm ready and I'm willing. And these guys got out of the boat. That's, I want to get out of the boat. I don't want to just sit in the boat and say, you guys got this one. I want to get out of the boat, and I want to make sure I'm ready, and I'm willing, and I'm bound uh, by duty. In Romans 1.16, it goes on to say, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. That power, the word dunamis in the Greek, means strength, ability, supernatural strength. Supernatural ability is there for us to have, to be able to answer the call, to have the power to answer the call, and to have the power not to be ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul writes. It is a power that is available to us, a supernatural strength, a supernatural ability to not be ashamed. 
So as we all continue, I want to speak about the power to not be ashamed. That's key, especially in this world when we stand out, when we stand for God. The power to not be ashamed. In Mark 8.38, look at Mark 8.38, and it says this. It says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes into the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So the, 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 what I want you to grasp is that's a big deal, to be ashamed. We cannot be ashamed of the gospel, the power that changes lives, the power that we've been given, and be ashamed of it and not use it. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, it says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of dunamis, but of power, a supernatural ability and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power, the dunamis of God. So here we see, this is interesting because Paul's writing to Timothy and he's talking about the power and he says, therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Or of me, his prisoner kind of stands out in a couple of ways. One, because Paul is a prisoner and maybe being connected or affiliated with Paul could possibly jeopardize uh, Timothy's freedom, maybe even his life. And then he would suffer persecution. Persecution, definitely, for following Christ. But Paul, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. You know, when we think of this, the second thing I think of is, yeah, being connected to someone like Paul is saying, like, well, you know what? I was talking to Paul the other day. I was like, oh, you mean the guy that's locked up? Yeah, locked up for what? All these false charges and what have you. And so he doesn't want to be, maybe, he would not want to be connected with Paul. Well, you know, for us, we have to be careful that we're not ashamed of Christ, number one, or ashamed of what the Scripture teaches. Because oftentimes the Scripture will say for us not to be a part of this thing going on in the world, or this thing going on in the world. And to the world, we stand out, and we're mocked, we're separated. They don't want to speak to you, they'll laugh at you. They'll avoid you, and actually those are good separations. Those are good uh, um, distancing of, of people on their accord. But we have to not be ashamed of sounding like some holy roller because that's what the world sees when you say, oh, praise the Lord. You know what? I, you know what? I believe the Lord wants me to blah, 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 and you instantly are holy roller Steve. And you can become ashamed of that. I think, man, they, I never get a chance to voice my opinion because they're already laughing because they already have given me a label of this uh, religious fanatic. But we cannot be discouraged because we don't want to be ashamed of what changes people's lives. We don't want to be ashamed of that power that changed our lives. And we don't want to uh, hinder anyone from experiencing that by not being equipped and not answering the call. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 
1, verse 17, it says this. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross, cross of Christ be emptied of its power, of its dunamis. In verse 18, it says, For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I'm not ashamed of the power that changed me, nor should you be. We should be excited about that. We should boast about it in godliness. We should be sharing it so that someone else can experience that power and be saved and spared hell. So he says, uh, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You see, it's his power, not our speaking abilities, not how we share or how we talk or how we look. It's his power. Someone can stand up here and just read some scripture and there's the power. Of no matter who it is, no matter what their abilities are, the power comes across through his word, through his spirit. But if we get caught up in thinking about us too much as the minister of reconciliation and we're thinking about ourselves too much, we, we take away from that power. We remove it with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It's all about him, always pointing towards him and saying, listen, I'm, I'm lost without him. I was nothing without him. I'm saved and, and I'm nothing special. I've just surrendered to Christ. And when, we, when someone hears that and sees that, they know that it's not about you. It's about him and his power. You see, so the Lord doesn't say, hop in the boat, relax, enjoy it. Enjoy the waves and you stay here, anchor, I'm going to go get to work. Me and my power, we're going to go take care of things and you relax in the boat. He is basically saying, no, hop in. Get in. I know there's a storm. I'll calm that for you. Let's get across. Get in. Don't get too comfortable and hold on, but have faith. We have work to do. That's what the Lord's trying to say here. That's what the Lord did here with his disciples. Looking at Mark chapter 6, verse 54. When they, when they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. Here jumps out to me is the power of recognizing Jesus. The power of recognizing who he is. You know, it says that they immediately recognized him. The people were in a frenzy. They see their celebrity, let's say, for, for the sake of, of, of a picture. Some of them saw the Messiah. Some of them saw the guy that could heal my daughter. Some of them saw the guy that could heal me. Some of them saw the interesting person they want to learn more about. But they had sick people with them, and they were excited, and they immediately recognized him. And that word immediately means right then, right away. You know, you recognize Jesus when you're looking for him. You'll see him. You know, Joe always goes through the Old Testament oftentimes and shows us pictures. And pictures that we thought, I, I could say, like, wow, I didn't see it that way. When, Jesus, uh, when Joe's looking at, for Jesus in the Old Testament, oftentimes he's looking and he finds him there. He stands out more. When we give our lives over to Christ and we're dealing with things in life, when he's in the forefront of our hearts, we will see him more. We will see his power. And when you see his power, and we don't become hardened to it. 
So immediately, they recognized Jesus because they were looking for him. Keeping in mind that they're looking, for him, looking to him, for him, for many various reasons. And I'm not here to fault reasons why people look for Jesus. I'm excited that people would look towards Jesus for whatever reason. Because if they see him and they're sincere or they're convicted at any point, that power will get a hold of them. So they recognized him immediately. The word recognized is, or knew him is epignosco. Um, and it means to know by experience. To know by experience, thoroughly acquainted with. To know accurately. How important it is to know Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ accurately. If I say, well, you know, Jesus is this, Jesus is that, and then you make your list of three things and you're good to go, as opposed to, I want to know him more accurately. I want to know him personally. Imagine if you're a, a parent and you say, well, I'm going to tell my kid uh, five things about me, and then that's good. Now I'm off and they can figure out the rest, or that's all they need to know. As opposed to saying, I want them to know me, and I want to know them. I want a relationship. And so these people, they recognized him, they knew him thoroughly, they, they, to know him accurately. How so? Well, because they were interested in listening about what was being said. Because the words about Christ, the talk around town or these, these regions, was at its peak. And they were hearing about him. There, is, there was an undeniable power going on. And they seen it. They knew what was going on. There is an undeniable power that causes people to recognize Jesus. Here it's evident because we see all the miracles that were taking place. So these people, they, they knew who they were dealing with or who they think they were, they were going to see. They had an idea because they were looking. So the question for us is, do people see Jesus in us? Because they were with Jesus, and when Jesus was seen, they, he was seen with his disciples. And so, do people see Jesus in us? Remember Peter and John? I think it's in Acts 4.13. It speaks that they were arrested, and, and it, it, it said that they were uneducated people, but yet they could tell that they had spent time with Jesus. It was obvious that they had spent time with Jesus. How could these guys who are uneducated talk like this? How can this woman or this guy or you behave like this because they're sold out to Christ? That's why they don't involve themselves in these things of the world. Is it obvious to the world that we spend time with Jesus? In John 13, 35, it says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. It will prove to the world. It will show, it will show them that who we are by our love for one another. So it is important that this, the love that takes place within these walls doesn't just stay within these walls. Sure, we should love one another. And you know what? For the most part, it's easy to love one another in this room because we all love Christ, right? We have, all the, we have the, minds, the same mindset. We're, we're like-minded. But then step out into the world where there are people that are running around like sheep without a shepherd. And it's maybe harder, right? It's harder to love them. It's harder to minister to them. But we have to have that heart of Christ. And that heart is of a shepherd. To see that they need him. To see that they need a shepherd. 
So with Peter and John, we see that um, in John 13, 35, that it will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Very popular quote says this, your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. You see, our lives as Christians should cause people to say, you know, they, he does have it together. She is able to endure this. And she keeps pointing to this Jesus Christ. And their disbelief should come into question. When they talk about their prayer for their children, their hope for their, for, uh, uh, their salvation, salvation for them, for the world, what have you, and they start to question and saying, am I doing the right thing by rejecting this Jesus? Our lives should, be, should demonstrate to the world that we are convinced of who Jesus is, that it is his, by his power, and by living in his power, it will be powerful for them as a draw for them to come to the Lord. So, look at Matthew chapter 8. Talking about recognizing Jesus Christ. Think back for a minute. Think back to the first time when you first recognized Jesus in your life. Maybe it was a little glimpse. Maybe it was just, it just knocked you over. Maybe it was gradual. You know, I, of, I often sometimes tell the story when I was what, I don't know, a little guy in, in elementary and I went to a Christian camp. I didn't know it was a Christian camp. I just knew there was a camp and my brother and I, we couldn't afford it and the teacher paid for us and we ended up at this camp and it was a Christian camp. All out, born again Christian camp. And it was amazing. And as a little boy, I just thought, wow, this is great. This is incredible the way they, they, they share this Jesus, the way they love each other, the way they're showing love towards us. And then that call came to follow Christ and to stand up and receive him that one night. And I didn't because I was waiting for my brother to stand up. And if he would have stood up, I would have stood up. But I was getting a glimpse of, what, of salvation, of Jesus in my heart, and I didn't respond. But we, when we think of that recognition of Christ, that power that was drawing us, the realization of how wrong we are without him, how empty we are without him. In, in Matthew 8, 27, when this uh, storm is, is calmed, it says, the men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? They are seeing uh, Jesus calm a storm for the first time. This is the first time when he's in the boat and, he, and he's asleep and he's, he calms it. And they're like, man, what kind of man is this? This potapos, potapos is the Greek word. Potapos means what sort? What quality is this man? It also means like from what country, what nation, uh, you know, and what quality? Where is this guy from? This guy that has this power to calm this storm. You know, maybe when your glimpse of Jesus was seeing someone whose life had just radically been changed for God, and you're like, how did this guy change? When you recognize that's the power of God changed him. I didn't think this guy would ever be a nice guy, let alone smile, but he loves God. And so... The question was, what kind, 
What sort of man is this? And some of your Bible versions will say, what sort of man is this? What manner of man is this? Who can this be? And so when people begin to see who Jesus is or they recognize him, they may not have a clue at all. They just know something's up with him. And that begins with our walk, our testimony among friends, family, and the world. When they see you living for Christ, when they see you living differently than the world's norm, there's a power that'll be like, what is going on in their life? What has changed them? Because I knew Steve before and something's different. So there is a beautiful, humble brokenness when we recognize Christ. You know, when Peter first recognized Christ, remember that time when they went out in the boat? And Peter was, uh, had been fishing all night, and, uh, and, uh, and Peter sees this miracle. Well, Peter is, is you know, Jesus is there, and he, uh, um, he says, let's take the boat out, and, and Peter's been fishing all night, and he says, oh, teacher, or rabbi, or master, the word that is used there, we've been at it all night, you know it, and we're done, you know, there, there's nothing going on. He goes, come on, let's push it out. So they, they tell, it goes against what Peter knows. It goes against what Peter knows for sure, uh, how to fish, when to fish. They're not biting. They're not going to bite now. And then they go out and they bring in this big boatload. And they bring in all these fish. And, 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 and Peter in Luke 5, 7 says this, when he saw the power of Christ. But when Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. You see, now it's from teacher or rabbi to Lord. The power of Christ changed him. The power made, uh, changed Peter's heart. But it, it more than just changed him to realize, like, you are Lord. You're more than a teacher, more than a, a rabbi. You are Lord. And with that understanding, we know we got it right when we look back at ourselves and realize, I'm a sinful man. In comparison to who he is, his power and his love towards me, I am unworthy and I am sinful. And there's a beauty there when we recognize not only who he is, but it comes, the other side of that coin should be who we are, and that's nothing without him. That's when we know, we know we're on the right track. That's when his power is having full effect, when we recognize him and ourselves as well. So in Mark 6, 54, when the people recognized him, they knew Jesus. They knew what he could do. His love, his care, his heart of a shepherd was undeniable. And in Mark 6, 55, we see something taking place here. This need or this acknowledgement of the need for Jesus. They are drawn to the Lord. It says in Mark 6, 55, and, they, and ran about the whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. You see, his power causes us to recognize our need for him. We recognize him, who he is, but then it also causes us to recognize our need for him. And that's what was taking place in this verse here. The people were drawn. People are drawn by his life-changing power, as I've said. The world is hurting. 
Therefore, the world is seeking. They're empty. You know, I saw this thing today. Was it this morning? Something popped up on Facebook. And it was a, an advertisement for someone, and it said something like, something about searching for that inner power or inner something. And it was just contrary to what I wanted to say today. Someone who teaches this or coaches this, like a life coach, and tries to reach that inner power that you have inside you. And how, how misguided that is. How opposite that is from understanding that this world is hurting and they're seeking and it's not inside us. It's the Lord. When tragedy strikes, God is sought after. When the world becomes the way it is, hope is being sought after. You know, people will ask, perhaps how many of you have been asked to pray for them? Someone who is not, not a believer and asked you to pray for them. Anybody ever have that happen, right? A few people? And they'll ask you to pray. Why? Because they know who you are. And they know that you have this line to God and maybe he'll listen to you. But their child might be dying and they're looking for hope. And they're looking to God. It says that they ran about the whole country to the place where they heard he was. They were running around these people. Now, to understand it better, to get an idea of what's going on is they were carrying the sick and the disabled. It was a frenzy of sort. People were going wild. They wanted to see who he was, and they would pick up their disabled friends or family, and they were trying to anticipate, where is he? Is he over there? And they would go. Is he over there? They would go. They were looking for him to, for healings. And so they were carrying their sick, and their sick were probably on these little mattresses or little mats, maybe even little stretchers. And imagine the people, the multitudes, people scattering left and right, trying to find out where he's going to be. And they're just bringing their hurting, sick, disabled loved ones or themselves. And that's the way the world is right now. People are hurting. We're spiritually disabled and hurting and empty. And they want to know, where do I go? And but these people knew of Christ and they were searching for him. And so they were trying to, they were carrying him and it's just a chaotic scene to, to certain degrees. And so when we look at that, we look at this today. Some people, well, these people were daring to pick up their loved one and just go to wherever it was, the shore that he was going to uh, dock at or wherever he was traveling, and they're running around with them. Today, likewise, people are desperate, and they will, without understanding of who Christ is, will even dare to go to church. They'll dare to go to church. They'll dare to talk to a Christian. They'll dare to have questions about spiritual things, the meaning of life. Why is there suffering? You see, it's the same thing. The world is hurting, and they're doing just what's going on here looking for hope, looking for answers. And these people were hurting, and they were looking for answers. And we have to be careful when we consider people like that, because they, after all, they are looking. You know, in Luke chapter 17, it speaks of 10 lepers. And they were calling out for, to Jesus for healing, because they knew that he could heal them, heal him, heal them. And Jesus uh, sends them to the priest to be inspected, because they had to pass inspection to be 
called clean. Otherwise, they were unclean. And they all go, and all ten are healed. But only one returns and gives thanks. Only one. You see, some people, like that picture there, some people want God's healing. They want his heaven. They want his help. But they don't necessarily want him. And we, understanding that in the world, have to guard our hearts as ministers of reconciliation and guard ourselves from mocking them or criticizing them because after all they're hurting and they are in need and they're recognizing something and we need to connect them to that power to recognize who Christ is. So instead we need to respond to that opportunity, respond to our call and be ministers of reconciliation, meet them where they are, work with them and help them we also have to guard ourselves because to certain degrees, we are guilty of the same thing. Turning to God when an immediate and tragedy strikes. When, wow, I wasn't calling out to God as, haven't called out to God like that in about six months. And, and we can find ourselves like that. Realizing like, well, I call out for God. We should call out to the Lord continually. Understanding his power. When we understand his power, his life-changing power, within our lives, who are believers, and for those who are not. And so we see this taking place in Mark 6, verse 56. We see something. Wherever he entered villages, wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. So this brings us to his power. His power does this. It brings us to a place of faith. It brings us to a place of decision. Wherever he entered villages or cities, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces. In the marketplaces because that's where traffic would go by. And surely Jesus is going to pass through here. So let's just lay my son right here. And maybe this Jesus, we can get close enough and heal my son. These people were hurting and they were becoming desperate because of sickness. We can become sickness when we look at this passage on and, and us. It may not be physical. It may be your marriage. You may be divorcing or divorced. There may be sickness in your family. There might just be sadness, hopelessness. As we look around this world, how, how, what is happening to this country that we love? And all this, uh, this depression and disillusionment, and we can become like this and desperate. But this desperation, we have to keep in mind, as ministers of reconciliation, that this desperation can equate to faith, saving faith. So instead of mocking someone like, I know why he's here, I know why he wants to go to that thing, we should, on the contrary, be excited and saying, you know what? My uncle is going to come to church this Sunday. Pray for my uncle. You know, the last thing you need is for someone to say something wrong to them when they're here instead of nurturing them and welcoming them because they're, they're there perhaps for a reason. They might be there because it's a Christmas play and they want to see their grandchildren on stage. 
but they're in the building. They're around the power of God. The power that happens when we love one another. We can't, we can't minimize the power that exists. As ministers of reconciliation, we are powerless if we just wear the badge and stay in the boat. Even if we've crossed over and with Christ and we don't get out of the boat, we're powerless. So this desperation can equate to faith. In fact, um, and I don't have these passages for you, but in Luke 19, Luke 19 speaks of a chief tax collector, and his name was Zacchaeus. He was a real tall guy. No, actually, he was really short. <laughs> I know, I was like, wait a minute, which one's this? Different Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a little short guy who had shortened stature, the scripture says. But Zacchaeus is really cool because he ran ahead because Christ was coming, and he knew, he heard about this Christ. He was a chief tax collector. That speaks volumes right there because the tax collectors cheated their own people. And he was a chief tax collector. So like he was the chief of the tax collectors that cheated his own people. So he made sure his own people were cheating his people. So he has, this guy was a chief tax collector. He was rich and he wanted to see Christ. Why? Why did he want to see Christ? It doesn't say why. What takes place in the end gives us a hint, probably conviction, probably something that would keep him up at night of robbing his own people. But he ran ahead, and he was a short guy, so he had to climb up a sycamore tree, and he waited for Christ to pass. And as Christ passed, um, man, it's interesting because there's a Greek word that talks about Christ, he's going to pass by. And, uh, and it says that he was going to pass by, but then he stops. It's a little different. Because that Greek word is, when, remember when the guys, the disciples were on the boat without Christ? Jesus praying, and he's going to go out there. He walks out there, and the scripture says in Mark 6, whatever it is, 47, I don't know. It says that, and Jesus walks on the water, and he was about to pass them by. And then they freaked out, and they called him. And I see that as he was, he was making himself available he didn't walk out there and say, guys, hold on, let me calm the storm. He made himself available. Christ makes himself available to us when we are in the middle of our storms. And we're in the middle of seeking him. So Zacchaeus is going up, he, stands, he sits up in the tree, and Christ is walking by and he was about to pass them by. But this time, as he's passing by, he stops and looks up at Zacchaeus and calls him down and says, hey, we're going to have dinner at your place. And salvation takes place in that house for Zacchaeus. You see, his recognizing who Christ was to whatever degree or his interest in Christ resulted in saving faith. He ran ahead. And that's what these people were doing. The picture we see in Mark 6.33 and 34. In Mark 6.33-34, it says the people saw them. This is, this is the context of Ma Mark 6, this was continual. This is the way it was, man. Must have been pretty cool to watch all this taking place if we knew who Christ was instead of just being caught up in the frenzy. The people saw them going and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. 
When they went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. So the the reason why I put this here, backing up, is like Zacchaeus, they, they ran ahead. The Sea of Galilee, this takes place about the northwest to you, northwest part of the Sea of Galilee. But he, as he was go- on the boat and going towards the shore, the people were like this. They say, this is the Sea of Galilee. And we see them. Whoa, whoa, whoa. He's going to go dock over there. And he grabbed their people and they ran ahead. People, can you imagine the scene from when you're on the boat as a disciple, with the disciples? And you're going toward this, around here, and you're going to dock over there, and you see this crowd. And they are hurting. And they're just running with sick people, carrying them so that they could be there when you dock. That's what was taking place here. That's what Zacchaeus did. You see how it can result in salvation because they wanted hope. They were looking to Christ. It wasn't a one-time event, this thing, because the Greek tenses indicate that it was a frequent happening. It was something that was repeatedly happening, frequently happening. Just stop and imagine that. In Mark 6, 56, the latter part of that verse, it says that they were imploring him that they might touch the fringe of his cloak. As many as touched it were being cured. Imploring, parakaleo is the Greek word there. Para, parakaleo, to implore, to beg. They were begging. They were pleading. They were imploring that, and it means to call to one side, to call for, to summon, to speak to, to call upon, to receive con- consolation and be comforted, to receive strength, encouragement, instruction, to come alongside. They were finding where he was and they wanted to draw near to him and come close to him. They were imploring this. Verse 56 this imploring, the, flint, the, the fringe of his cloak. As I mentioned earlier in, um, in uh, Mark, the woman who had a, a, a blood issue. For 12 years, this woman had a, a condition of blood, continual bleeding for 12 years. And here's interesting about this part is she touched the hem of his garment and was healed because power left Christ. And again, this is a frequent thing that was continually happening. That's why people wanted to get close. Perhaps they heard about this woman just get close, man. Just get close to him, enough to touch the hem of his garment. Twelve years, she was basically permanently unclean, this woman. Shunned by people. Excluded from the synagogue. She just wanted to get close. No one else wanted her near. But she wanted to get close. She got close to and she touched the hem and she was healed. We too can find ourselves feeling that way. Man, I, I, I really messed up in my life. I don't know if the Lord can forgive me. I know he's forgiven me, but I don't want to get too close because I don't really deserve much and just maybe get close enough. He wants to embrace us. He wants to hold us. Like that shepherd and the sheep, he wants to nurture us. Touching of the hem, drawing close to the Lord was the heart set of these people. They wanted to get close. Touching the hem or drawing close to the Lord. Um, James 4.8 says this. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It goes on to say, cleanse your hearts or cleanse your hands, 
you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now that double-minded is dipsukos. It's an interesting sounding word, a dipsukos. Being double-minded, we don't want to be a dipsukos. A dipsukos means to be someone who is wavering, doubting, divided interest. Holding on to the world, but yet wanting God. Wanting heaven, but I still want to do this party scene. Double-minded. We need to commit to realizing that we can't be double-minded. We need to be sold out for Christ. We need to be surrendered to him, not wavering, not having a divided interest. There's so many things in this world that can divide our interest. Finances can divide our interest to doing what's right. Meeting a girl or a guy can divide your interest in doing the right thing and living a pure life because that person you want to be with. There's so many things that can cause us to be double-minded. In Mark 5, uh, 6.56, it, it says, and imploring him, that, imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were being cured. Lastly, his power saves us. His power saves us. It is that power that brings salvation, right? In Romans 1.16. That word cured is sozo. Sozo means to save, to keep safe, to keep safe and sound, to rescue from danger, to touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many touched it were being cured. In Romans 10.9, it says, it uses the same word. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be sozo. You will be saved. You will be cured. So these people, and including ourselves, wanted to draw close to the Lord. They all had different reasons. They all had different needs. Some came to him with faith. Some of them were saved, like the woman with the blood issue of blood, like Jairus's, like Jairus, whose daughter was raised from the dead, like Zacchaeus, because they wanted something from him, but they came to him with faith, not just for a physical healing, but a spiritual healing. As many as touched it were being cured. And again, we're being cured means that it was frequently happening. This was a common uh, scene that we're talking about here. And so bringing this all home for us, this, when we become, when we became cured, when we became saved, we became ministers of reconciliation, right? Remember Second uh, Corinthians 5.18? It says this, and I'm going to read this translation for us to give us a better picture of understanding. But it's a full circle thing that takes place with us when we get saved. We become ministers of reconciliation. And all, and all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to himself, answering the call, being filled with his power, his power changing people, us just being ministers of reconciliation and introducing the two. But now back up to 2 Corinthians 5.16, it says this, so we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. 
how differently we know him now. If we know him differently now, meaning as Lord, all-powerful, and then we, we re- realize that on the other side of that coin is that I'm nothing, I'm a sinful man. That comes together with the realization that you are a minister of reconciliation and that we no longer look at Christ as the world does. We're not here to mock the people who look at Christ in an odd way or a weird way, but when there's interest, we need to respond to that call and help them not look at Christ in, a, in merely a human point of view. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says this, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. That word new, that means it refers to an actual event, yes. A new beginning, yes. But what's interesting with this word new, kainos, kainos means new, fresh, as in quality. Man, if, if I got saved and now my back doesn't hurt anymore, now I'm not feeling old, that'd be great. But I'm new spiritually in quality. The inner man is renewed. There's a beauty right here. And th- that newness is there was, yes, there was that time when we received the Lord and we became new. If you are battling with surrendering to the Lord, you can become renewed today. If you surrender to the one that you know, you recognize as being the Messiah, the one who died for your sins, the one who can provide forgiveness for you and cleanse you from all your sin, we can have a new start. We're entering a new year. What We're into it for what, uh, 34, 36 hours now, whatever that is, into 2022. Let's not go into this new year as the same old guy. We want to go into this new year as a new person. And when you get saved, you don't just become new and there you're done. The scriptures talk about becoming perfect or mature as the Father in heaven is perfect. That we are to continually grow and we are continually changed and we are continually renewed. So let's start this new year new. We can become renewed in, in, in so many ways in our lives, I'm sure that we can recognize. But the one verse that I, I often think about, and I think it's um, 19, Revelation 1911. 1911, I remember the 1911, is it says, The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. All-powerful God, he reigns. And the question is, does he reign for yourselves? Does he reign in my life? Does the Lord reign in my life is number one in my heart. Because if he does, you're saved. If he does, you will grow. And if he does, you will be equipped to be a minister of reconciliation. And you won't hang out in the boat. You'll get off the boat. You'll minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. He will change lives because you perhaps introduce people to Jesus. Let's have that heart set of a shepherd. Amen? Let's bow our hearts before they pass out communion. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for the beautiful record we have of your ministry. We thank you, Lord, as we get to somehow walk with you in ministry and see how you operated your your love towards people, the example you set for us that we so often fail at. Lord, I pray that you would renew us, equip us, 
so that we're ready to minister to people. Help us, Lord, not to be afraid to get in the boat, to travel with you, to have faith, and to be a minister of reconciliation. Lord, I pray for those right now that are on the fence, that are trying to understand perhaps who you are, that are wrestling with a complete surrender to your life. I pray, Father, that they would surrender. I pray, Father, that your power, your spirit would convict them and show them that we are sinful without you. Lord, I pray for renewal here today. Even for us who are believers, I pray, Father, that you would renew us, strengthen us, cause us to be more in love with you. Lord, I pray for those who are still rejecting you, those that might even be smirking at you right now, rejecting you. Lord, I pray that you would have mercy on them, that they would surrender to you. Lord, we thank you for your word. And I pray, Father, that as we, as communion is passed out, that we would just meditate on, on the beauty, the love, the power that exists in your Son. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.